0: Today's reading comes from Luke 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated. Now, as you're seated, I'd invite you to pray along with me as we prepare to hear from the word of God. Father, we uh, we want to rejoice. Oh, what an awesome and good God you are. And I love the line uh, that we sang this morning, that you did not abhor the virgin's womb. That you, God, took on human flesh to come as a king who would save us. Uh, Father, I ask that... Uh, to the glory of Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work powerfully among us today, uh, that you would just cause us to see something of Jesus' glory, to see something of his goodness, and of his love, and his mercy, uh, long-expected Messiah. Lord, uh, we want to be changed as we behold him and delight in him. Holy Spirit, we need you to do this, to to press into our hearts, and to, to change us. We ask that you would, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in our Advent series this morning. We're taking a break from our Sermon on the Mount series. We'll come back to it in January. But we're in our Advent series. We're excited about that. And our Advent series is our series, which is all about Christmas. It's all about the first coming of Jesus Christ, 2020-ish or so years ago. And our hope this Advent season is that we would grow as a church in worship and an adoration for Jesus. As we consider who he is and what he has done as he's come, to us uh, so many years ago now, because we know that right now we live between the times we live with the knowledge of his first coming fixed firmly in our minds, the the hope of all that he's accomplished, the truth of his salvation, uh, what what happened when he first came. We live with that in mind, but then between the time of that happening and the time when he will come again, when he will return, when he'll make all things right, we live in hope of that second coming. In this Advent season, as we live between the times, we want to show you the way that Jesus' first coming, that it's the center of all of human history. We've called this sermon series, The Turning Point of History. Because we want to show the way that Jesus is at the center. He's at the center of everything. The Bible claims that he's at the center of everything. What we need to realize is that the Bible's timeline then is not like the timelines that maybe you drew back in grade school, right? And you had the whiteboard out or the chalkboard, depending on how old you are. And uh, you you took the the dry erase marker and you drew that long line and you did the hashtags, you know, all across it with the significant events. You see, the Bible's history isn't a flat line like that. We don't talk about it that way. The the black or the flat line or the, the timeline of the Bible's history is more like an hourglass on its side. It's an hourglass on its side because it's showing that all of history before Jesus was leading down, funneling down towards him hoping in the promises that were made regarding him, the salvation that God would work through Jesus to undo all that was broken and all that's wrong in this world. The Bible's history and the Bible's timeline also understands that all of history subsequent to Jesus kind of grows out of his first coming and points back to that first coming. The power of his resurrection life is at work in his church. His church is growing and expanding in hope for the promise that one day he will return and all things Will be made new. He's at the center place of history. And for this series, if we consider that center place of Jesus as a turning point of history, we're going to do so by looking at four distinct truths, four distinct lenses, if you will, about who Jesus is and why he stands at the center of history. So today's the first of those four, we're going to look at Jesus as king. Next week, though, we'll look at who Jesus is as prophet. And then third, we'll look at him as priest. And then fourth, on our last Advent uh, Sunday, we'll consider Jesus' role as the king once more, but with more of a look not to his first coming, but with especially a look to his second coming, to all that will be accomplished and all that he will do at his second coming. So today, Jesus as king, our Advent series, we're going to jump right in. Our outline is this. First, the need for a king. Second, the promised king. And then third, the arrival of the king. All right, so I'll say that again. Need for a king promised king, and then third, the arrival of the king. We're going to jump right in. we've already read a bunch of scripture this morning. I'm still thankful for all the choices of of scripture, even in the worship set leading up to uh, our scripture reading. We've read scriptures that seem to have this pretty triumphant and excited perspective about Jesus as a king. They're excited about a king. But maybe you're wondering this, you know, we live in a different kind of world today. Maybe you're wondering, why does Jesus' kingship matter? Why does this kingship matter? Why would I ever need a king? That sort of sounds preposterous to us, doesn't it? You know, today we've got democracies. We've got different kinds of government. And to think what we need is a king, to get excited about a king, it just seems so foreign to us. I'm sure this week, as you guys went through the struggles and the difficulties that you faced this week, say as as pressures face you, maybe the pressures of your studies, it's finals coming up. Maybe the pressures of your upcoming bills, just trying to figure out how to make it. Or maybe the uncertainty of the future that you have. Or, or maybe as you just felt the weight of a disease. Of yourself or of a loved one. Maybe you experienced the discord of a particular relationship. Maybe with a friend or a family member or a spouse. I doubt in those very real struggles, in those moments, the first thing that came to your mind was this. Man, what I really need is a king. What I really need is a good and loving king. That would, that would fix everything. It's not something that we think about. It's, it's kind of foreign to us, isn't it? It's foreign to us. We don't think much about kings today. And there's a reason for that. The reason is I, for one, and I don't think you either have ever lived under the rule of a king. And I haven't done it. And apart from the latest Buckingham Palace gossip, right? So like Markle fanatics say, yeah, you know, there's a few of you out there, maybe. Um, Apart from that, we don't think about royalty much, do we? We just don't have it on our minds. It's not a category that we commonly associate our issues and our needs with. And yet, and yet all throughout the Bible, God's promises to right every wrong in this world, his promises to bring peace, his promises to bring blessing and flourishing and happiness to his people, they're inseparably bound up with his promise of the coming king. Kingship is central to all of that. Why is that? Why is kingship so central here? Why is that such an important motif as we think about God's promises of salvation and, and the hope that we have as human beings for a better world and a better life? Well, it's because the Bible identifies all of the problems in this world, actually, with corrupt authority on the one hand. The problems in this world, from disease to hatred to murder to strife, the Bible identifies those with corrupt authority. And all the solutions to the problems in the world, the, the Bible actually points to this idea of good and loving authority reestablished and reinstituted over the creation. Just look at Ephesians 1, verses 9 to 10 to see some of this. We've talked about this recently here at Christ City Church, but we're going to talk about it again today. There we read this. It's not, it's not a complete sentence, so I've kind of edited it a little bit to uh, make it a complete sentence. It says this, God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ, is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. In Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth, God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ, his purpose of of blessing, of redemption, of salvation for all fixing of all the wrongs in this world. His purpose is this: it's a plan for the fullness of time to unite everything in Jesus, to bring everything under the rule and the loving dominion of Jesus Christ. To restore order by bringing things under Jesus. To bring salvation by bringing things together under Jesus. You see, God identifies our problem as being outside of the good and loving authority of Jesus Christ. And he identifies the solution, the peace and the blessing with the restoration of that good and loving authority in our lives as he brings us together under the rule and the reign of Jesus And if that sounds crazy to you this morning, that seems surprising. Like, I didn't think about it that way. That's not something that I naturally go to when I think of the problems of this world. I think that actually there's something that you experience in this world that actually shows to you that it's true. Because even in this world, even in your experience of this world, you know that there is an association between, between peace and good authority. You know that evil governments bring suffering and turmoil to their populations. Just this week, I was reading a BBC article that was talking about the current situation in Zimbabwe. It's really, it's really rough right there right now. It's an awful situation. And in that article, I read, that, uh, I read about um, the way that 14 million people, they're living in a state of man-made food insecurity. And I'd never read those words in that order before, so I didn't really know what they meant. But what he's talking about, what the article was showing, was that due to the corruption of that government, and so there's this man-made problem where people aren't starving yet, but they're just on the verge of all starving. It's really bad, and it's man-made. It's, it's a corruption of the government. It was the, the evils of the government, the evil and illegitimate authority that created all sorts of turmoil, and, all, and not peace, but, but turmoil instead in that country. And on the flip side, I think we as understand the association between good authority and peace, because we, we have elections, because <laughs> we get tired of the old government, right? We go out with the Harper, in with the Trudeau, and then one day out with a Trudeau and in with somebody else, because we're hoping that a better government will bring us greater flourishing and greater peace in Canada. We're looking for something better. We're looking to our government to establish that, to have better authority. Good government and peace are related. And yet, if you are hoping this morning, if you're hearing all this and you're really hoping, oh, great, Brent's going to pin all the problems in this world on political leaders. I agree. <laughs> it's all their fault. And here's where I disappoint you. It's not the problem Merely of all the political leaders in this world. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's not why I'm trying to say that the reason our governments disappoint us is that our governments have the same sin problem that we do. Sin is in their hearts and, and our hearts as well at root, a rebellion problem. It's an authority problem. Sin is an authority problem. Sin is inverting the right authority structure that would lead to peace and instead placing us at the top of that authority structure so that we stand in judgment over God. So we say, God, not your way, but my way. You submit to me. Sin is us doubting that God loves us saying, God, I see what you say, but I doubt that you have good and loving purposes for us. I'm not going to trust myself to you. I'm going to do it my way instead. And every time we do this, every time we invert this authority structure and have corrupt authority structures in our lives, it hurts us. It hurts us deeply. It leads to turmoil, not to peace. Yet we do it (laughs) again and again and again. I do it. You do it. It's what happens when we hear the word of God. We open the Bible and we say, hmm, I hear what you're saying there, God. But I don't think that's the way it is. You know, I'm not convinced. So when we open the Bible and we look at it and we say, you know, God, this is all right and good, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to determine which way I should live myself. I'm going to do it my way. It's what happens whenever we're tempted. It's what happens when we open up Instagram on our phone, right? And you're scrolling through and you're thinking, you know, I know what God says about sexuality and what would lead to my flourishing. But I'm I'm not going to obey that because I don't think that it's going to lead to my satisfaction. I'm going to try something else that will lead to my satisfaction instead. It's what happens when I'm tired. (laughs) I experience this all the time. I go home and rather than serve my family and love them and care for them selflessly, I I just want to veg out on the couch. Because in that moment, I doubt, I doubt God's good purposes of me serving my family and loving them will lead to my blessing and flourishing. And I think doing things my way instead is going to be what's needed. It's going to be better. So what happens when we look at our futures, when you look at your future and you choose to pursue maximum personal benefit financially or influentially or through comfort, rather than seeking instead, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because you've doubted God. You've doubted his authority. You've doubted his love for you. You doubt that God's will for you in this world will be good as you pursue him first. And you doubt his love. There's a woman named Jackie Hill Perry. And she's this incredible author. She's got an incredible testimony. She's written a book called Gay Girl, Good God. It's an awesome book. And she talks about her own sin in that book in terms of doubting God and living under her own authority independently of him. She writes this. She says, Unbelief doesn't see God as the ultimate good. So it can't see sin as the ultimate evil. It instead sees sin as a good thing, and thus God's commands as a stumbling block to joy. In believing the devil, I didn't need a pentagram pendant to wear. Neither did I need to memorize a hex or two. All I had to do was trust myself more than God's word. I had to believe that my thoughts, my affections, my rights, my wishes we worthy of absolute obedience and that in laying prostrate before the flimsy throne that I had made for myself, that I'd be doing a good thing. Isn't that powerful? She talks about the way that, that she found freedom and hope and joy in Jesus and submitting to his rule in her life. But all of us are like her. All of us are like Jackie Hill Perry. We, we doubt God's love for us and in doubting him, And establishing our own authority structures apart from him, we experience hardship and pain in our lives instead, not peace. And yet, here's the good news of Christmas. Here's the good news for each of you and the suffering that you're experiencing this week. And yet God has set out on a plan to lovingly draw us back into his good and his gracious rule. He's promised us a good and a righteous king who will woo our trust who will cause us to love him, to delight in him, to graciously and lovingly accept his rule over us that will lead us into flourishing and in peace. Christmas is, arrival about, Christmas is the arrival of that king, Jesus Christ. But Christmas doesn't come out of nowhere. It has a history. It wasn't just like one day human beings going along in the typical day-to-day suffering of our lives and pop, there's Jesus. Like, hey, where'd he come from? It's not like that at all. Christmas has a history, has a history. Jesus Christ was promised far before his coming. Look with me at our second point. Now the promised king. All throughout the gospel narratives, Jesus is connected to an earlier king. He's connected to a history, to one of his ancestors, a man named David, who lived around 1000 B.C., And we're going to take some time now, we're going to take a few moments to enter into the story of David, to enter into the story of Jesus, to try to understand where he came from. And as we do that, I want us to realize as we enter into this story, that we're entering into a culture and a story that isn't ours, a culture and a story that is foreign to us. And as an anecdote to explain what we're going to do to learn this history, I wanted to share with you the way that when I was in Kentucky, I would actually help out with the refugee ministry from time to time in our church. And that refugee ministry uh, had a number of things going on. But one of the things that we did was we helped the people that were coming as refugees to learn the history of their new country in preparation for their citizenship test. So they they had to do that before they became citizens. They had to learn the history of their new country. And I want to say this. It's the same for us here. As Christians or as those that are exploring Christianity for the first time, it's like we've immigrated to a different kingdom. We've immigrated to God's kingdom. And it's worth our time to learn the history of the king who has saved us, who offers to save us. We need to take some time to look at that history. So what is that history? Why do we need to know it? What is it about? Well, we can't unpack the whole Bible. I made a joke this morning earlier, how we're going to you know, start with Genesis 1 and end with the book of Revelation. We can't do that. Uh, so we're going to give you the Cliff's Notes. So what are the cliff notes of the, the history here that leads up to, to David and to Jesus? Well, the Bible begins with the story of creation, the way that God creates humanity. But very quickly on, humanity rejects God. And all the suffering and the brokenness, brokenness that we experience in this world, it comes into the world through their rejection of God, their sin and rebellion against God. And things in Genesis, if you read that book, go from bad to worse. This is this, this uh, onslaught of destruction and decay as people reject God and live that way. But in the midst of that decay, in the midst of that suffering and pain of our own rejection of God, God is gracious. The book of Genesis in chapter 12, it starts to talk about the story of God's work of redemption through a particular family, through a man named Abraham and through the offspring that Abraham would have through the people that would eventually become the people of Israel. And God determines through these people to bring blessing and salvation to this world despite our rejection of him. He chose these people out of the other nations on earth. He rescues them a little later on from slavery in Egypt. And then he brings them into the land that he's promised to them. A land that he promises will lead to their blessing and flourishing. But as you consider Israel's history, you need to know something about them. You need to know that their history was a mess. It was a mess. If you read the Old Testament, you know the history of Israel was a mess. You know that despite God's gracious intervention in the life of Israel, they could never get it right. They kept resisting God's authority and his love for them. They kept fighting it saying, God, I don't know about that. (laughs) I want to do things my way instead. I don't think it's going to go well submitting to you. And eventually they reject his leadership and they say, God, we want a king. We don't want a prophet. We don't want a judge. We don't want a mediator. We want a king. Hey God, like look over here. The Canaanites, they got these cool Kings, these charismatic rulers. And besides they got chariots and armies. God, wouldn't that be awesome? We want some of that. We want the chariots. We want the armies. And heck, we want the palaces too. Can we have a king? God, can we have a king? Yet, yet God warns them through his prophet Samuel. He says, look, a king's not what you want. <laughs> Giving greater authority to a sinful man will just lead to him exercising his sinfulness with greater resources. <laughs> you don't want him to have more resources. It's not going to be great. And yet God concedes and he gives him a king. Israel's first king was a man named Saul, and Saul did everything and more that Samuel warned the people about. He was proud and he was paranoid. He didn't faithfully follow God, and the people suffered for it. And yet again, despite this, God had mercy on his people. And after Saul, God raised up David to leave his people, to lead his people. He raised up this king, David, that that our passage of scripture in Luke talked about. And he raised him up to bring his people stability and peace. And blessing. David was to, to Israel what George Washington is, to the United States of America. Maybe in a lesser way, he's kind of what Johnny McDonald is to Canada, but we didn't have, you know, the whole history of rebellion and all that stuff in quite the same way. He's this figurehead that unites the tribes of Israel. He's a king that conquers Israel's surrounding armies and enemies and brings peace. He's a king who opened trade routes and built palaces and brings prosperity. And he's a king that even led his people Spiritually. And to look at David as an ancient Israelite was to look at this king with hope. Look, now we have a leader who is bringing us into the blessings that God has promised our people ever since Abraham. God is peeling back the curse and the consequences of sin through the leadership of this king. Look at David. So you would have thought for a while anyway, because even David couldn't escape his own sin. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. He murdered her husband to cover it up. His kingdom cracked. His family was divided. And in the end, he failed to do what was right. And the people suffered. But despite David's failure, God didn't make a mistake in giving the people a king. No, God had purpose to use the role of king to bring about someone so much better than David would ever be. God had purpose to use this role of a king to finally set things right. And God promises then to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13, and then 15 to 16, something about the king who would come as descendant of David. God says to David, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man. With the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. notice what God promises to David in verse twelve, just leave the slide up there for a moment. In verse 12, he says, I'll raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. He he says, David, someone's going to come after you. And the implication is that someone will bring about the peace and the blessing and the good life that we've all longed for. It's going to happen through this son. Or look at verse 14. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And what he's saying there is that this king's not going to have the same sin problem that you do. He's going to be a royal and obedient and faithful son in the place where all the sinful rulers were before. He will follow me righteously. He will love me. He will be like me and he will extend my rule on earth. And verse 16 says, your throne shall be established forever. The promise is that this future king wouldn't have a little kingdom for a little while, a little like Eddie of prosperity and then destruction afterward, but that his rule and his reign and his peace would last forever, forever. As he sits eternally on the throne of David, his father. See, these promises that God makes, are called the Davidic Covenant. That's an important word to learn, a phrase to learn if you're looking at the history of Israel, to understand the Davidic Covenant. And all of the Old Testament then starts to look back to this promise and thinks about this promise and longs for the fulfillment of this promise in anticipation of the king who would come as a descendant of David. So why does any of this matter? Why do we go through all this history? Well, it matters because long before Jesus, we need to realize the Bible communicates a very specific picture of peace. And it's this God's people ruled forever by the good and loving King who would be a descendant of David. This King would finally bring peace. But notice this, there's a conditionality to this promise of blessing and peace. The promise will be fulfilled only, only when there is an obedient son sitting on David's throne. To see this a little bit more clearly than the text we just read, look at Psalm 132, verses 11 to 12. It makes it crystal clear. This psalmist, he thinks about the promise that God made to David, and he says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. That's a big if. That's a big if famously David failed as did his sons and his son's sons and his son's son's sons. Rather than blessing coming, that whole discipline part of the Davidic covenant came instead. And God disciplined the nation of Israel and all these terrible things happened to them. In Psalm 89, we actually read another psalm where the psalmist reflects on God's promises to David, but also on all the destruction, including exile to Babylon and the the destruction of the the, the land of Israel. And he reflects on both the promise and the consequences of sin. And he ends the psalm in lament, looking backward to the promise that God made to David. He says this, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. It's so the servant David. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. See, the psalmist looks at the promises to bless David. And he's asked, he's left asking this question. God, where is the son who's going to come? All I see is Ruin. All I see is destruction. Where is he? When is he going to come? When are you going to have mercy and extend love and extend peace and blessing to us? It's against that dark night, that bleak moment in history, that a ray of hope dawns. Against that dismal backdrop of sin and corrupt leadership, a baby is born. In the region of Roman-occupied Palestine, to a beleaguered people at the turn of the millennia, a thousand years after God made his promise to David, a baby was born to a man named Joseph and his betrothed wife Mary. This child has Mary as his mother and God Most High as his father. He is God clothed in flesh. He is the promised king. And his arrival is a resolution from dissonance to consonance in the whole symphony of human history. He has come. He is hope. He brings peace. Look at our last point, the arrival of the king. In Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day, today, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The long for Messiah has come. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those, uh, among those with whom he is pleased. Imagine being with those shepherds. Imagine being an Israelite. Longing for these things to be fulfilled, and being with those shepherds after the angels of God appeared in glory to testify to his birth. Imagine only hours later gazing down on little infant baby Jesus. This baby, this baby is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And he is so much more than anyone ever expected. He's not just a descendant of David. He's also, in the words of Charles Wesley, in the awesome hymn, Hark for Herald Angels Sing, he's also this, Veiled in flesh, hidden in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God did not abhor the virgin womb, but became human to save us. God the Son, taking on flesh and coming to us. This baby the angels uh, told of and the, the shepherds came to admire, to worship, he's the God king. The king who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he allows himself to be held in frail human arms. This is a sinless king who will reconcile God and man, yet he's helpless and small. This is a king who always does what is right, who will die and will conquer death and be raised to eternal life. Who will rule this world forever in his love and in his righteousness and in his power. And he has arrived as a baby. If you were a shepherd, what would you be thinking? The long awaited and hope for king. He wasn't born to a king's family. He was born to a poor couple in scandalous circumstances and into poverty. What would compel the God of all to enter into the realm of the rebellious humans who had rejected him? You know what compelled him? His love. His love for us. His steadfast love and his faithfulness. His steadfast love and his faithfulness. Though he could have asserted his dominion, with an iron fist, God could have just righted all wrongs right then and there and crushed all those who had rejected him, including us. He didn't, he didn't do it that way. No, in love and humility, this King Jesus would grow up and he would sacrifice his life in order to make peace with his enemies. In order to make peace with me. In order to make peace with you. That's why he came. That's why he came the first time. He came at his first advent to reconcile rebellious sinners to himself. He came to reconcile sinners and rebels and make them citizens and saints of his kingdom. That's why he came to bring us to God. You see, our story is the same as the story of Israel. Our rebellion is the same as their rebellion. We dealt God's love just like they did. And just like them, we reap turmoil in our lives because of it. But into our sin, God reaches out in his grace and he reconciles us to himself through a baby king born in Bethlehem as a longed-for descendant of David arrives. How did he do it? How did that reconciliation happen? Well, it happened through a cross. It happens as Jesus dies in our place, takes our sin upon his shoulders and gives us instead his righteous life, brings us the power of his Holy Spirit into our lives. Colossians one twenty says this, as God was pleased through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. The crucified Savior made peace with us, bringing us into relationship with God. See, Jesus' coming, his coming as a baby, it shows us something. It teaches us that God's love for us is not a tyrannical love. It's not the self-deceived love of some kind of a megalomaniac. It's not that at all. Jesus' coming shows us that God's love is a gentle love of a God who understands more than we ever will what it means to sacrifice his life to die for his friends. The incredible miracle of our salvation, the incredible miracle of Christmas, is that Jesus came. That he was willing to be born as a baby and enter our suffering, live perfectly in our place, and die as a criminal so that we could be reconciled to God as his children. And even today, even today, between his first coming and what we live in a world that's still broken as we long for his second coming, when he'll make all things right, even today, the rule of Jesus in our lives makes all the difference. Even today, through Jesus, the power and the shame of our own sin is broken. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you're at this morning, but if you're like me, you probably have you probably have accusations and the knowledge of your own sin that just pressing on you saying you're not good enough. You'll never live up burdening you, covering you in its shame. Jesus breaks the power of that shame. His sacrifice for you shows you that God loves you, that his grace is for you, that he draws you into relationship, not reluctantly, but willingly. The power of your sin is broken. Maybe you just feel the oppression of a particular sin that you just can't seem to get a handle on. The good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus, his death for you, your death with him on the cross and your resurrection life with him uh, by the Holy spirit, that the power of sin in your life is broken, that you can learn to walk, that he's going to be faithful to help you to learn to walk in victory over that sin. The power of it is broken through Jesus. The enmity between God and man is replaced by a relationship of love. Through Jesus, intimacy is restored in our lives with the God of the universe as he takes residence in our hearts, the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. His rule matters today. But there's so much more even this because though Jesus is humble, he is no powerless king. He's not a king who's mired in bureaucracy and has limited resources to make real change happen. That's not who Jesus is. That's not who Jesus is. No, Jesus is a human king who's also God. To him belongs the infinite power of the God who created all the universe into existence with his spoken word. And one day this king will return and he'll exercise that power on earth and he'll right every wrong. He will finally and fully establish his kingdom and bring us as His citizens into it. He'll heal disease. He'll crush wickedness and evil. He'll bring everlasting life to his people under his everlasting rule and destroy death forever. He'll destroy sin in our hearts, and it won't ever have a grip on us again. Praise God. He'll fix this broken world in every way that it is wrong. He'll make it right. That's our hope. Through Jesus, God declares in Romans 21, verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. So as we wrap this up this morning, I'm wondering this. This Christmas season, Christ City, where is your hope? Where is your hope this Christmas season? You and I live between the two advents of Jesus. He's come to reconcile us to God. He's yet to come again to to make everything that's wrong right. You guys know that profoundly because you're human beings who live in a suffering world. And at Christmas, maybe more than any time of the year, we feel the tension of living between his two comings, don't we? It's painful. At Christmas, we hear again the promises of his perfect peace, but we feel painfully the persistent presence of sin and brokenness in our lives. We're just reminded of it. It seems like Christmas is like salt on the wounds, reminds us of the brokenness and the pain. And in that brokenness, in that pain, we wonder, God, where is the peace that you promised? Where is the peace that you promised? Maybe that's you this morning. And in that moment, the challenge, I think for us, the challenge for you right now is the same authority challenge that all of humanity has faced since the beginning. It's a challenge of trusting God's love. Does God love me? Is he for me? Is his savior, which he provided worth hoping in? Will I continue to trust God and his purposes and his plans through Jesus? Or will I start to place my hope in something else? Jesus is a turning point of history. He's arrived as a humble savior king who reconciles us to God. And he's coming again as a king who will bring everything together under his rule and make all things right. And look, in the midst of your suffering right now, I want you to know this. The arrival of Jesus at his first advent is a message and a declaration of hope for you. He's beckoning you to trust him. To endure in faithfulness, holding on to Jesus. Knowing that every promise that God has made about Jesus will come to fulfillment. Because of Jesus in the midst of your suffering right now, you can endure. And you need endurement, don't you? You need perseverance. Perseverance. Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, I am with you always. Brothers and sisters, hear Jesus' words to you this morning. I am with you always, to the end of the age. Because he first came, by the power of his Holy Spirit, he's with you now, drawing you into relationship and comfort, knowing the God of the universe who loves you. As you suffer, as you endure, you can learn to walk in the power of King Jesus who frees you from the sin and the rebellion that you're enslaved to. As you learn to walk by the power of his Holy Spirit in your life. Hope in him. Trust in him. Through Jesus, you can walk knowing that God will set all things right and knowing that he says this to you. The Lord is your helper. You do not need to fear. What can man do to you? Hebrews 13, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I can endure. I can trust that every wrong will be made right. I can live for him faithfully. You can be confident that he's not going to lose his grip on you. that he's not going to give up on you. Because Jesus first came, you can know that all that God has begun, he will finish. I love the words in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 24, which say this. Here, this is an encouragement this morning. The God who calls you, Jesus who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will sanctify you completely. He will make you like Jesus. He will fulfill what he's promised to you. For you struggling right now in your life, you can know the love of God. The love of a father for his children. Look at this. 1 John 3, 1 says this. See what kind of love the father has given to us to us that have waited for Jesus. He's come. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. You are the children of God. He doesn't just tolerate, but he loves. And he draws into his family in his grace. So where is your hope this Christmas season? There's only one uncorrupted and good and loving authority. Jesus alone is worthy to sit on the throne of your heart and to rule you, not you, not another government. Don't put your hope in yourself or in someone else. Put your hope in Christ. Trust in him. Submit to his rule and learn to walk in his peace. Will you draw near to him in faith with me? Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We come to you broken and sinful but we come to you knowing that you've been so gracious and full of love to us in Jesus Christ. God, would you help us this Advent season to look at the king that you've promised, the king who you sent, the king who is at, uh, at work right now ruling our lives. And would you help us to delight in him, to hope in him, to trust in him through whatever we're going through this week and this season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.